7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A minority of South African people have steady, formal jobs. Too many, including a large fraction of the country's youth, do piecemeal work or are unemployed altogether. We look at the efforts to bring the young into the workforce. And there's a lot of talk about public figures, particularly candidates in America's upcoming presidential race, speaking multiple languages. What's with these polyglot politicians? But first... A funeral will be held today for a young journalist from Northern Ireland who was shot dead last week. We're all poor for the loss of Lyra. Our hopes and dreams and all of her amazing potential was snuffed out by a single barbaric act. Lyra McKee had been reporting on violent unrest in the city of Londonderry. Uh, we believe this to be a terrorist act. We believe it's been carried out by violent just Republicans. Yesterday, a group called the New IRA took responsibility for the killing. It even apologized. The incident was a shocking reminder of the fragility of peace since the end of the Northern Ireland conflict known as the Troubles. This was an attack on everybody in Northern Ireland. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Protestant, British or Irish. This is an attack on democracy. The Troubles began in the 1960s and pitted mostly Catholic Irish nationalists against the British Army, the Northern Ireland police and mostly Protestant loyalists. For three decades, violence and terror was a part of everyday life. The turmoil claimed more than 3,500 lives. But in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement largely brought an end to the conflict. Today is about the promise of a bright future, a day when we hope a line can be drawn under the bloody past. Some low-level violence continued, but this latest killing has sparked fear and outrage. The funeral today of Lyra McKee is going to feel in many ways like almost a, a state occasion. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's Britain editor. We're expecting to see the Irish Taoiseach there, the Prime Minister, also the President of Ireland, the Northern Ireland Secretary of the UK, as well as a load of local politicians from Northern Ireland, of course. And, and so it's going to feel like a big deal. And it really is a big deal in Northern Ireland. This kind of killing of an uh, innocent civilian in a, what seems to have been a terrorist attack is something that really has shocked people. It's by no means the norm. Since the peace agreement of 21 years ago, this kind of thing is much less common than it used to be. And people here are really, really shocked by what happened last week. 
And Tom, what can you tell me about the group responsible for Ms. McGee's death, the new IRA, and, and its relation to um, the other groups with IRA in the name? It, it's, a, it's a bit of a confusing picture. It is. It really is. And I think to understand it, you've got to go back to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. And what happened there was that the IRA and, and most Republicans agreed to end any kind of armed struggle and take their fight for a united Ireland to the debating chamber and off the streets. But at the time, there were some Republicans who disagreed with that, who thought that this represented a capitulation. And these guys who are now widely known as dissident Republicans have continued their armed struggle on a a fairly low level. But nonetheless, they are a security worry. MI5, the security agency, rates the threat in Northern Ireland as severe. They have continued trying often to murder police officers, for instance. And so why did the new IRA kill Lyra McKee? Well, she seems to have been killed by a stray bullet. She was watching a riot taking place in the city of Londonderry, or Derry as it's known to most Republicans. And she was watching from next to a police car and she was shot in the head and and later died. And this riot was kicked off really after police had been raiding homes in the area uh, shortly beforehand. It seems that they were concerned that on the anniversary of the Easter Rising, some local Republicans might be out to cause trouble. And it seems that some so-called dissident Republicans used this as an excuse to get their people out on the street and, and cause some trouble. And the new IRA said it was an accident and apologised. There's some significance to that, right? There is, yeah. It seems that they really feel as if they're on the back foot over this. Uh, They're a group which has said that it's prepared to use violence to further the Republican cause, but they seem to be well aware that locally these kinds of acts of violence in which ordinary innocent civilians are killed or injured, uh, go down extremely badly and really risk setting their cause back. And we've seen evidence of this already in Derry. The headquarters of a local political party, which is supported by the new IRA, people have been smearing red painted handprints on their office as a form of protest. And locally, various Republican murals have been graffitied as well by people saying things like, not in my name. And so they, I think, realised that this could set them back in a big way. Police also are reporting that more than 100 people have phoned them with information about the killing. And in a city like Derry, that's really unusual. This is not a place where people have historically been happy to talk to the police about Republican activity. So we could be seeing quite a change there. So do you get the sense from all that then that there is just simply less tolerance for the kind of violence that was so common during the Troubles? I think that's right. I think since the Good Friday Agreement, which was almost exactly 21 years ago, many people in Northern Ireland have come to see that the peace that's been achieved is is enormously valuable. And the idea of going back to that is something that really worries a lot of people. And I think most observers think that the chances of a return to sort of full-scale violence are very slim. But any sign that violence is on the rise is obviously a worry, especially at the moment with Brexit going on, which is causing all kinds of problems for Northern Ireland. We've also got the problem of the Northern Ireland Assembly having been suspended now for more than two years. So there's a feeling that Northern Ireland is in a vulnerable position Uh, And so events like this do concern a lot of people, that people worry that things are being destabilised there. But you mentioned Brexit in in passing there. Do you think that all the negotiations and the degree to which Northern Ireland has been such a, a linchpin of the negotiations has sort of reignited tensions? It's certainly reignited tensions, yeah. We haven't yet seen a big kicking off of large-scale violence or anything like that, but tensions absolutely have been heightened. And it's not surprising because the peace deal made back in 1998 really 
hinged in many ways on the UK and Ireland's shared membership of the European Union. That helped to enable these two countries to have a border which is not just open, but invisible. I mean, if you go there and drive between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, you can do so without even realising that you've crossed the border. And of course, membership of the EU means that the two countries are both members of the single market, and so no customs checks are needed. And since 1998, people in Northern Ireland have been able to choose whether they take an Irish or a UK passport. In many ways, they've been allowed to feel as if they are either Irish or British or, or both if they want. And so the UK now leaving the European Union really will subject that to strain. And it's clearly pulling the UK and Ireland apart in a way that nobody anticipated 21 years ago. And many people, particularly in the Republican community, most of whom voted to remain, by the way, think that Britain is in some way reneging on agreements that were made or hinted at 20 years ago. So it is a time of heightened tension, yes. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. South Africa is in the midst of an unemployment crisis. The only country with a higher official unemployment rate is Venezuela. For the country's youth, the outlook is particularly bleak. Nearly 40% of those aged between 15 and 34 are not in work, training, or education. South Africa has two economies. There's one in which a minority has steady, formal jobs and lives a rich world lifestyle. And then there's a second in which people either have informal work or no jobs at all. John McDermott is our Africa correspondent based in Johannesburg. I see this every quarter in the unemployment numbers, but I also see it all around me, whether it's going to the DIY shop and seeing young men carrying brooms or hammers advertising work, or even at the bottom of my road where there's a guy who stands there most days carrying a sign that reads, any job, please. And... This is a human tragedy, but it's also one that threatens the social stability of South Africa. The roots of today's unemployment crisis can be found in the apartheid era. Demonstrations against the South African government's strict apartheid policies. This is the trauma and the dark shadow of hunger, of homelessness, of illness, illiteracy and unemployment. Unemployment actually began to tick up in the 1970s and 1980s, because you had a large black population who were deliberately undereducated by white rule and who couldn't move freely in order to find work. So when you had structural changes in key industries like mining, farming, and manufacturing, and when you had sanctions imposed on the racist regime, growth stalled, demand for labor fell, and it was difficult for the majority black population to find skilled jobs in this economy. And, and so absent those pressures, presumably things got better after apartheid. 
Things have gotten a lot better since 1994 when democracy happened and the ANC, the African National Congress, took over. Delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. But when it came to power, it did make a decision about how the labour market would be structured. And that was to have a highly regulated jobs market, which is perhaps understandable given all the bad things that happened to black workers under apartheid. But essentially what happened then was that you had an economy with German-style regulations, but a workforce that didn't have German-style skills. And because of that, it's been often too expensive for employers to actually hire people. Right. And what about today? How does the state of the economy today affect unemployment levels? The state of the economy is not great, to be honest, Jason. And that's largely a result of the last decade of rule by Jacob Zuma, who stepped down last year. He was a president that was stratospherically corrupt and did great damage to the economy. Unemployment remains really high, around 27%. And essentially, there's been no GDP growth per person for nine, 10 years. And that's the inheritance that Cyril Ramaphosa, the current president, has to deal with. And and so there are 40% of young people who aren't working, aren't getting trained, aren't getting educated. What's life like for them? Life is pretty tough. A few weeks ago, I went down to central Johannesburg to an organization called Harambe. And what Harambe does is it tries to help these hundreds of thousands of young people, or at least some of them, find work. You know, time and again, you just hear these tales of people with a lot of drive and self-confidence that had just been eviscerated over, over a number of years. There's one woman called Delvia, whose story kind of particularly stuck with me. She's 32 now, and she has two kids. She lives with her mum, and she spent 12 years looking for work. I've done uh, firefighting. It was fire one. Hazardous material And she tried a number of different courses. She tried to educate herself. And then after that, I tried looking for a job. And then since 2006, I was trying to look for jobs everywhere, but I couldn't find any. And then None of that seemed to work. Firefighting course. I also done security because I saw like many people. And that's not necessarily unrepresentative. The average secondary school graduate in South Africa takes until the age of 30 to find a job. To be qualified for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even now, even if I can and Delbia told me that by the time she found this organization, Harambe, her confidence was almost completely shot. I used to isolate myself a lot, so I couldn't speak in front of people. I couldn't do anything, so I was always quiet. But There's actually a call centre that is within the Harambi organisation, which is trying to give people work experience. So Delvia finally got an opportunity to try out her skills and there. I took my first call, I was like shaking. I couldn't even hold the mouse on my first call. I was shaking, I didn't know what to say to the customer. That's how nervous she was, but also how much this job had meant to her. And what else does Harambi do to help young people into work? It does some basic stuff. So it gives these young people a bit of money so they can afford transport costs and data for their phone. But it also does something else, which is to try and build their confidence. Over a number of weeks, it runs courses which are basically trying to build up young people's soft skills. I sat in on a couple of these courses, which were fascinating, and I, I got to observe something which, which you would enjoy. It's called the war cry. What's that? Ahu, ahu, a dream! Ahu, ahu, without any action! Ahu, ahu, with all that's mine! Ahu, ahu, a dream! Ahu, ahu, a dream! 
there at the back of the room and you've got, I guess, kind of 30, 35 young people who towards the end of the day's class will kick all the tables and chairs away and a different person every day will nominate themselves to lead the war cry. And in slowly stirring movements, they will all get up hacker style and do this quite kind of moving exercise in order to build up a sense of camaraderie and self-confidence. which both kind of impressed and intimidated me. But places like this can, can only do so much. This is addressing a really big systemic problem. Well, what's the government going to do about this? Cyril Ramaphosa knows that jobs and the economy are the key issues ahead of the election next month. And he's pledged to do a number of things about it. Most importantly, attract a whole lot of foreign investment, which in theory will kickstart domestic industry. But what the president hasn't done is to set out an agenda that would actually lead to a serious drop in the unemployment rate. That is because for mostly political reasons, he's unwilling to dismantle this insider-outsider economy. So you have a number of regulations, for example, a national minimum wage, strong hiring and firing laws that have been imposed by trade unions, and wage bargaining councils, all of which are useful if you are a worker within the insider economy, but it makes it much harder if you're in the outsider economy to get a decent job. And unless the president is actually willing to take on those shibboleths, he might get a little bit more money coming into the country, but that doesn't necessarily mean there'll be many more jobs for South Africans. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. John's take on employment in South Africa is just one part of a special report on the country coming out in a couple of days in The Economist. Pick up a copy to learn more. Lane Green writes Johnson, our language column. He's been tuning in to some of the contenders in America's presidential race. So this year's Democratic field is not only a very big one, about 17 candidates. I've even lost count, I think. But notably, a number of them have shown off their language abilities on the campaign trail. Beto O'Rourke speaks a pretty good Spanish. Si queremos enfrentar los retos. Kristen Gillibrand, who studied Asian studies at university, trots out some Mandarin. Kamala Harris, who spent some time in Montreal and Quebec as a student, speaks conversational French, apparently. But one that everyone's talking about is Pete Buttigieg, who is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and speaks about seven foreign languages. A few easy European languages like Spanish and Italian and French but also Maltese, which is his family heritage language, Arabic. He speaks Dari, which he learned as a military intelligence officer. He was in the Navy. And uh, he even learned Norwegian to read a favorite author. And so how is that, that sort of perceived superhuman ability being, uh, being dealt with on the campaign trail then? Well, from the sort of left wing of the Democratic Party, there have even been some attacks on Buttigieg for speaking all these languages because he's this kind of shiny character who's been at McKinsey and he was in the military and he plays the piano and he went to Harvard and his mother and father. Too educated. Almost too educated as kind of a show, just like racking up all these accomplishments and along the same lines as – his uh, being at McKinsey or being in the Navy, just kind of a, a CV item rather than a useful skill. 
And why do you think this discussion about languages has, has come to the fore? Why, why is this becoming a campaign issue almost? Well, I think probably Buttigieg's ability has been the thing that's got everybody talking the most. It's sort of the gaudy number. Uh, but it's also something symbolic of a sort of liberal, non-liberal divide right now. What some people call the neoliberal, internationalist, globalist kind of left really prizes foreign languages. The kind of people who travel and have loads of stamps in their passport are always the ones who are most likely to not only speak a foreign language, but also to be very pleased and proud to trot it out. And that plays out a little bit differently on the right side of the political spectrum, where even those who do speak a foreign language are typically a little more halting about about trotting it out. But not every Republican politician is is monolingual. Not at all. No, in the 2016 cycle, we had two uh, Latino Cuban-American politicians, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Uh, Rubio, the two of them, was distinctly more willing to speak Spanish. Jeb Bush, who was a Florida governor, uh, spoke Spanish. But then Donald Trump actually went after him and criticized him for speaking Spanish in questions to reporters and said that he should set an example, as he put it, by speaking English in the United States. Conservatives are a little bit more likely to push English-only laws, uh, mostly at the state level, banning public services from being offered in other languages, and to be a little bit more sort of rah-rah about their patriotism, implying a sort of if you speak another language, then maybe you're not quite so proud of speaking English. What does this debate, though, look like outside the U.S.? I mean, the, uh, Americans are somewhat famous for only speaking English, but in plenty of places, you can't get, you can't even get away with that. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a debate. In a lot of countries, multilingualism is part of the national fabric and part of the political culture. Top-level Canadian politicians need to be able to speak French and English and very often will sort of switch right in the middle of a press conference. In small countries like Switzerland and Luxembourg are multilingual, and people are expected to speak several or all of the national languages. Singapore is one of those countries that is unified by English, but people are expected to know some Chinese, and there's, of course, a Tamil-speaking and Malay-speaking population as well. And so it's another one of those places where without multilingualism, the country just doesn't work. And so they're part of a really bone-deep, I think, national value. Lane, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.